Alan, welcome. How are you today? I'm fantastic. It's so great to be with you. It's great to be with you. Um, so I'm looking at your website and right there on the homepage, you've got pictures with all these superstars, Anthony Davis, Kevin Durant, Kyrie, LeBron, Steph Curry, Chris Paul, Kobe Bryant, the list goes on and on. What in the world were you doing that was so special that you were working with all these fantastic people? Well, I'll give you a little bit of context and a little bit of backstory, and I'll be as succinct as possible. So basketball was my first identifiable passion, and I fell in love with the game at five years old. And, and I can't tell you how grateful I am that here 40 years later, basketball is still a major pillar of my life. And I say that I, I just have so much gratefulness that, that I've been able to not only make a living, but build an extraordinary life about around something I'm so passionate about. And uh, I was a, a decent enough player to play at a very small college uh, in North Carolina, uh, in the mid nineties. And while I was in college, I started to develop an equal love for performance training and strength and conditioning and athleticism and nutrition and mindset. So when I graduated from school in 1998, I figured what could be better than combining my original love of basketball with my newfound love of performance training. And I became a basketball performance coach and I specialized mostly at the high school level because that's where I felt I could make the biggest impact and, and be a role model to the players I worked with. But I didn't work at uh, normal traditional high schools. I got a chance to work at two high schools that have a combined over 12 players currently playing in the NBA. Uh, the most notable, notable of which is Kevin Durant and being able to work with such elite level high school players uh, got me contracted opportunities with Jordan brand, Nike basketball, USA basketball. And that's what got me an opportunity to work events for, for some of the players that you just mentioned, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, Steve Nash. Um, so basketball has been very, very good to me. And I've had an opportunity to see both sides of the curtain, you know, work with a player when they're 13, 14 years old and see exactly what it takes for them to climb that proverbial mountain and get to the NBA. But then I've also been around guys like Kobe and LeBron, uh, already established Hall of Famers, and I've gotten to see what they need to do to stay on top of that proverbial mountain and still incrementally get better. So basketball has, has taught me a lot. And, and then five years ago, I decided to take all of the, the rituals and routines and disciplines and strategies and lessons I learned from the game. And I now apply those to folks in the corporate world and show them how they can run more effective businesses and have more fulfillment in their own lives. Yeah. So when you say performance coach, were you working with them on the physical aspect, the mental aspect or all of the above? So I did not do anything on the skill side. So I was not responsible for shooting, passing, rebounding, defending or handling the ball. My goal was to one, help bulletproof their bodies against injury. So on the physical component, get their body stronger and more resilient to 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 injury. Uh, and then on the second side was to improve their athleticism so that they'd be more fluid and explosive on the court. Um, after a few years of doing that, you know, heavily focused on the physical, uh, it, it became very clear to me that the key to maximizing the physical was also increasing the limits of the mental. So I started diving into mindfulness and, and mental toughness training and so forth. So by the time I left the basketball space, it was equal parts physical and mental, but I just didn't do anything on the skill side. So you're, you're working with these guys and you're realizing, hey, they're all fantastic athletes. They're all at the top of their game. What separates some of them from the rest is all, so often the, the mental, the emotional state, the mental aspect. 
you go and look at guys over the years that have really struggled. Like, I always go back to Chuck Knobloch. I don't remember if you remember that uh, from the Yankees. Remember? A great second baseman. Something happened in his personal life, and then he could never get the ball from second to first base anymore. I mean, this was a, an all-star type player. So when you noticed that there was a lot to this mental stuff, what, what did you start doing with these guys to help them uh, improve themselves? We just made sure that we focused on it. You know, the interesting part, and I know that's a very simple answer, so I'll unpack that a little bit. You know, if, if you ask most, most athletes or most coaches or even most folks in business, like what percentage of performance do you believe is mental? And let, let's just talk about sports, for example. So just basketball. Ask them, what, what percentage of the game of basketball do you believe is mental? And, and I've heard anything from a conservative 50% to some of them say, you know, 75 to 80%. And then the follow-up question was, okay, well, what do you do to improve your mental capacity or your mental toughness or your mindfulness or your ability to be present? And usually that follow-up question would just be met with a blank stare. Like, well, what do you mean? How, how do you train the mind? So the first step was showing everyone that you can and should train your mind in the same fashion that you would train your body. Everyone knows that if you want to get stronger, you go into the weight room, you progressively list he heavier weights with good form, you know, that, and, and you follow a, a systematic and progressive and sequential training program. Uh, and I just needed folks to understand, well, you do the same thing with your mind. You know, you need to get mental reps. You need to get reps practicing being in the present moment. You need to learn how to quickly move to the next play when the play that just happened was not to your liking. So uh, the first step was awareness, making sure they were aware that their mind was something they had control over and their mind was something that they could get. They could improve that skill set and mindset with purposeful practice. Oh, it's beautiful. It's, be it's incredible how that is such an undervalued, underappreciated skill set when it comes to professional sports it's it's incredible people think that these that these athletes they're just freakish and they are but boy if they don't have the mental to go with it they're usually going to struggle they're not going to ever make it to the top oh for sure and and the thing is when you get to that top we'll use continue to use the nba as an example almost without exception every player is big strong, athletic, and fast. Like it's no longer the separator. You know, when you're in high school, you know, and, and this, these were the players I was working with, you know, when you're in high school and you're 6'10 and you can jump out of the gym, that in and of itself is a separator because most high school kids don't have that same athleticism. Uh, when you get to college, that gap narrows a little bit, but by the time you make it to the NBA, you know, the physical side is rarely the separator. Now, yes, we can name a couple of players that just have unparalleled physical attributes and athleticism. Uh, but once again, you're talking about a small handful of players. Everybody else is playing with roughly the same, same hand and, and they need to be able to separate themselves on the mental side. So it becomes an even more, uh, even more of a separator than it, than it appears at face value. Absolutely. I have to ask you, because we mentioned Kobe's name several times. And I know how it made me feel um, going back to January, 2020, you get the news. Kobe Bryant dies in a helicopter crash with his daughter. What was your reaction? Well, first, and I think like most people was just one of sheer disbelief. Um, you know, I was actually out at the moment and then all of a sudden my phone started blowing up and, you know, I just kept receiving text after text after text saying, did you hear the news? Um, and, and at first I think it was a little bit of denial and disbelief that, that, you know, especially in this, you know, and, and I don't want to go too far on a tangent, but with, with certain clickbait and certain fake news type things that, that are 
you know, constantly being brought up. I just couldn't believe it. But once, you know, after a few hours had passed and it was obvious that that had happened, where it hit me most was, to be honest, was as a father, you know, not even this wasn't just Kobe Bryant, uh, one of the greatest to ever play the game, someone that appeared to be immortal. But, you know, as a father and I've, I'm the father of three children, that's where it really hit me that I, I couldn't even fathom in those last few moments of despair, how helpless he must have felt not being able to protect himself or his daughter. Um, you know, I, I know this might sound a little crazy and borderline morbid, but I'm hoping the time it, that elapsed from when he realized something was wrong till his demise was incredibly narrow. Like, I hope there wasn't a whole lot of of time to panic or be worried. Um, I hope it almost came out of nowhere. You know, right. I think that would be a little bit more palatable, but yeah, where it really hit me hard was as a father. Um, and then I started getting a tremendous amount uh, of people reaching out because the, I tell a story about meeting Kobe for the first time. And it's one of my signature stories that I usually open every single keynote with. So, you know, I've delivered that story hundreds of times to tens of thousands of people. And so many people reached out people that I, I didn't even formally meet that said, Hey man, you spoke at our event two years ago. And I remember that story. It helped change me and my appreciation for respecting the basics. You know, I'm so sorry for your loss. So, you know, at that time it, it had nothing to do with me, but it made me feel good to know that the story that I learned from him wasn't in vain. And it was something that was being of service to others. And it was, it was helpful to others. And, and I've only, you know, ramped up my telling of that story now, you know, to hopefully help, you know, preserve and, and escalate his, his legacy. It was shocking to me to see such a superhuman figure uh, at the, in the prime of his life, just gone like that. I mean, it was so it was I was in such disbelief and I had the same thing. I'm a fa I'm a father to three daughters, which is, you know, he, he had all girls and I had. So that really struck me. And, and, and the fact that he lost one of them with him, I mean, was absolutely just so gut wrenching and devastating. How I mean, when it took me some time and again, I don't know, Kobe, you know, him, you've worked with him. How did you handle that, uh, Alan, just in your day, the days and weeks that followed, maybe months the mental, the emotional, how did you, did you find yourself changed at all from that experience? Oh, most certainly. And, and to be quite honest, you know, when I, when I finally moved out of the disbelief stage and, and, and started going through, I guess, more of the traditional steps of, of grieving. I mean, I, I definitely struggled a little bit that, that shook me, you know, for one, it got me questioning my own mortality and saying, okay, if, if this guy who many of us unconsciously felt was immortal, if his time can be over in the blink of an eye, then it reminds me that so can mine. And, 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 you know, and, and I, I, I try and use that reminder in a helpful way that serves me. And that way is to one, uh, be as present as possible, possible as often as possible. Um, two, to make sure that if I have something to say to people that I care about, that I say it because you're not promised an opportunity to ever see them again. And, and I don't say that um, with any morbidity. I say that just, in reality. So I, I try and let people know how I feel about them. And I try to be, you know, extra present with those that I'm with. And I try to live my life to the fullest. I mean, you know, I, uh, I take very good care of myself. I'm 46 years old. So in my mind, I'm at about halftime of my life. You know, I, I should have another good 46 years on this planet if I continue to eat well and, and exercise and take care of my mind, body and spirit. 
But what happened with Kobe is a reminder that that is not guaranteed and that is not promised. So I, I live my life uh, in a way that, that, that I'm doing what I want to do with the people that I want to do it with. And I let them know how much I care about them. And I do work that I consider meaningful and in service of others. And I take care of myself in the event I will be around for 46 years. But if for any reason I'm not, I, I'm, you know, I would on some level be at peace with that. Mm. Yeah. It's Which incredible. is not easy to say. I mean, no, it's, it's not. It's not. You know, it's, um, it's, it's amazing how devastating events really shift our our, uh, our landscape and shift our percep perception of things, perspective. Yeah. Um, I think I heard you tell a story to sticking with Kobe. I think I heard you tell a story on a podcast about his work ethic. And I want to get to the mental because that guy, when you, we go back to the mind and the mindset, I mean, there was nobody better. No. And uh, I think you tell a story and I'm, I'll let you tell it about him. If he's, he was doing like a practice before every practice. Right. I think this was him. And eventually over the course of time, how can anyone catch you? Right. With, with, if you tell, tell that story, if you were sure, what I'll do is I'll, I'll kind of give you the, the cliff notes version. Cause it's kind of two separate stories that I, I found out at different times, but then they contextually, they weave together beautifully. Um, so the first time I ever saw him work out was in 2007 when I had a chance to work his Nike skills Academy. And I got to watch one of his private workouts, which was really early in the morning. Like put it this way. I got to the gym at three 30 in the morning and I thought I had beat him to the gym. He was already in there with a full sweat. So that gives wow. you an idea of what we're talking about here. Uh, and I also remember that the stuff he was doing was incredibly basic. Like for the first 20 minutes, he was doing basic footwork drills and some form shooting and, and stuff that I had done with middle school age players. So for me as a young coach, that was already eyebrow raising to me because I expected to see at that time, the best player in the world doing fancier drills. Like I thought I was going to see some sexiness and some sizzle with what he was doing, but he was just sticking to the fundamentals. And later that day at camp, when I asked him and point blank said, Kobe, you're the best player in the world. Why are you doing such basic drills? You know, he flashed that million dollar smile. He gave me a friendly wink, but he said in a very serious tone, why do you think I'm the best in the world? because I never get bored with the basics. And, and mm. that was a, a life-changing moment for me because in that moment, I realized that just because something is basic, it doesn't mean that it's easy. See, people often use those words interchangeably as if they're synonyms, but they're not. They don't mean the same thing. What it takes to be elite in any area of life, whether it's basketball or business or, or anything in between is very basic in principle but is definitely not easy to do and certainly not easy to execute. And I think it's important for all of us to remember that. Now, a couple of years after that, um, in a separate conversation, I found out the reason that he was up at three in the morning to get a workout in is he said, even the most driven and dedicated and ambitious NBA players will work out twice a day. You know, they'll, they'll do a two or three hour workout mid morning and they'll do a two or three hour workout mid afternoon. And, and those are the guys that are really getting after it. And he said, if I just do what everybody else is doing, then I'll end up like everybody else. So if I want to create some separation, then I need to put in extra work. So I'm going to come in before everybody else. I'm going to get my first workout in early so that when I'm leaving the gym from my first workout, everybody else is showing up for their first workout. You know, when they're coming home from their first workout, I'm heading to the gym for my second workout. And he said, if I can always put in one more, you know, one more workout session or one more practice to everybody else, you know, week after week, month after month, year after year, he said, the separation will continue to increase 
and no one will ever be able to catch me mm. because I'll outwork them. And I just, you know, that is so in a, an alignment with the Mamba mentality and the way Kobe approached things. Now, I, I do want to say in a full disclaimer, Kobe was somewhat of an anomaly. I mean, that dude was special in every way, shape or form. As a general rule, I do not prescribe the more is better philosophy. Like I don't tell people that the way you get ahead in this world is to simply outwork everyone by sheer hours. Cause I don't believe that's the best recipe for most people, but that's the most important part of that sentence. Kobe was not like most people. So if, if you're trying to, to get separation in your business life, I don't recommend you work 16 to 18 hour days consistently to try to beat your competition. One, I think that's unsustainable and you'll burn yourself out. Two, I think you'll actually miss out on quality time with your family and friends and community. And then if for any reason your lifespan is shortened the same way Kobe's was, you know, I, I think you're leaving a lot on the table. So I, I just wanted to throw that out there. It worked great for him, but I don't try to put in more hours than the next guy. I try to put in better hours than the next guy. Yeah, well, and that's part of your theme of Sustain Your Game, your book, which will get to some of that. Um, having that work-life balance, balance in life is so hard for people to find and a balance in so many different aspects from hard work and longer hours to then tying in the family time, tying in your own mental health, your own personal development time, all those kind of things. But I wonder, when it comes to that type of mentality, Alan, what is your take? Do you think that that mentality is just, you're just born with that craziness in your head, that obsession, or can that be learned? And the reason I ask is, and maybe not to the exact extreme of Kobe, but can that type of obsession where, hey, I, I can't sleep tonight because I'm worried about the next guy passing me. Can that mentality be somewhat learned for some of these other guys that you see in the NBA who have all the talent in the world, yet struggle to be um, to have the great work ethic? So can they get to that point? It, it absolutely can. And it's, it's something I think almost in a perfect storm. I do believe some of it is, is genetically encoded in our wiring when we're born. I think a huge portion of it, um, and, and I would love your thoughts on this since you're a father as well. I think a huge portion of it um, is the environment you grew up in and what was modeled for you, especially in your younger formative years. You know, if you happen to have a parent that loved what they did for a living and sunk a ton of time and effort into working on their craft and, and putting in reps during the unseen hours, you know, I, I, I know for a fact that has a huge effect on folks, you know, um, uh, as a quick sidebar, you know, another player, Stephen Curry, who I believe will go down in history as the greatest shooter in the history of the game. You know, yes, his dad was a, a 12 year veteran of the NBA was an incredible long distance shooter in his own right. But I think the best gift that he gave Steph was he modeled for him how important it is to work on your craft during the unseen hours. Like it's, you know, it, it's no secret that Steph grew up, you know, tagging along to the gym to watch his dad put in work. And I think at a very young age, he connected the dots and said, my dad's in the NBA, my dad's a great shooter, and my dad comes in all of the time to put up shots. So if I want to be in the NBA and I want to be a great shooter, then I guess I need to come in and put up shots as well. And I think that making that connection is what solidified it for him. Uh, and then lastly, I, I do believe that certain things can happen, especially in our childhood, um, certain traumas, if you will. And I know that that sounds like a somewhat dramatic word, but there can be some things that happen to us that that can lean us towards this compulsion or this obsession to be great in something. You know, if you feel like, the love from your parents or the love from others is conditional on how well you perform, 
then you may feel like I need to be obsessed with putting in the work so that I can earn someone's love and affection. And, and this is a very slippery slope, you know, because I, I I'm, I'm here in Vegas with my three children and I want them to know I love them unconditionally that I love them regardless of how well they perform or what they achieve. You know, uh, certainly I want them to take the steps to be happy, well-adjusted contributors to this world, but my love is not dependent on how many points they score in a game or what grades they get on a report card. Now I want to be able to help support them so they can do those things at the level that they wish, but my love is not conditional, but I've been around some folks that have felt that way. You know, they've, mm -hmm. they felt that if they don't perform or achieve that they are unworthy or they're less than, and that, is what can drive an obsession. And I don't know that that's necessarily healthy. And I'm certainly not saying that had anything to do with Kobe. I don't know enough of his backstory to, to speak on that intelligently, but I think between our genetic coding, what was modeled for us when we were younger and how we choose to uh, our perspective and choose to process different traumas that we've had, all of that can shape one's uh, ability to be obsessed. And, and the last thing I'll say, cause I know this was a mouthful Every word in the English language, which is the only language I speak, but it is, is, has some type of emotional connotation to it. Like the word makes people feel something. And that's what's fascinating because you and I, uh, two relatively informed, intelligent people, could hear the same word and have a different opinion of how that word makes us feel. Uh, and obsessed is one of the interesting ones because I think when you use it to describe a Kobe Bryant, you're 100% accurate. But at the same time, I don't consider myself obsessed. In fact, if I am snuffed out tomorrow and my time on the planet ends, I hope no one uses the word obsessed to describe me. Now, they could use the word compelled. They could use the word driven. They could use the word passionate. Um, but I don't ever want to be obsessed because when I hear that word, I think of almost uh, you have blinders on. You're incredibly narrow minded to only achieving this singular goal and and you're risking everything else outside of that. Now, hmm you may have a completely different connotation with the word obsessed. You may process it in a very favorable and positive way. So I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with the word, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the behavior that's associated with it. I just have to find things that are the right fit for me. And obsessed happens to be one that's not for me, but right. I'd love your, I'd love your take on it. Well, that makes sense. It's almost like you're equating uh, obsession to lack of having any kind of, um, interest in anything else like, yeah. like nothing else matters besides this one thing and i think what you're saying is that equates to a potentially really depressing lonely type existence because the obsession i guess it, to the extreme level is if you're that obsessed quote unquote uh nothing really else matters so family doesn't matter social life doesn't matter Time for yourself doesn't matter. Time for your development, time for friends, uh, anything, anything else, right? It all goes to the wayside because you can't get this one thing out of your head. Yes. The way you just described it is how I perceive the word, right. that word. But I, that's what I want to go on record saying. That is simply my, my perspective and my perception. I'm not Absolutely. attaching a label of good or bad, right or wrong to that. That's just how I choose to view it. You know, I, I think, you know, on a similar athlete and, you know, on that same level is, is Tom Brady, who I think many people would also describe as obsessed with his craft, but he certainly, and I've never met him, but he certainly appears to be someone that has a pretty balanced life. Like he appears to be a, a present and loving spouse and father and, and, and member of the community. And yes, he wants to leave his mark as being the greatest football player to ever play the game, but 
his obsession doesn't seem to be taking over the rest of his life. Now, again, I'm just sitting in the cheap seats observing that. So everyone can, can use words, however, and, and he's, as got long a, as he's got a controlled, it, yeah. Alan, he's got a controlled obsession. We'll call it. We'll yeah, call I, it I love that obsession. I, I love that. You know, um, you know, this also reminds me of what you were talking about with the childhood and the obsession and all this. I could see a guy like Tiger Woods falling right into that category. Because if you think about the childhood, you think about the father putting the golf club in his son's hand at two years old and golf, golf, golf. That's all that mattered. And then Tiger became the best player in the world. Maybe the probably the best golfer of all time. And uh, and then all of a sudden you saw when his father passed away, you saw a rapid decline yeah. in Tiger's game. And back to your point, was it because of that that uh, overwhelming need for love from the father need for approval acceptance that really drove him to that crazy obsessive level oh you bring up a great point he, he's a perfect example and you know what i find interesting too you know his father from everything i ever read or watched or listened to because i never met him either and haven't met tiger but you know he his dad, as hard as he was, was also his biggest fan and his biggest supporter. Like he almost, and I use this word with a huge smile. I don't lace it with anything underneath it, but he almost brainwashed Tiger into believing I am indestructible. I am the greatest of all time. Mm. And when his father passed away and he didn't have that person in his ear, and then we all know that Tiger had a few minor indiscretions, if you will, that kind of knocked him off of that pedestal and he didn't have anybody in his ear to help pick him back up. I mean, he unraveled very quickly. I mean, he, he went from being not even just the greatest golfer of all time. You could make a pretty compelling argument, maybe even the most dominant athlete of all time, you know, and, and, and I'm a huge Michael Jordan fan. I'm a huge Mike Tyson fan. I mean, Roger Federer, there've been some other dominant athletes, but during his reign, I mean, Tiger was unbeatable. I mean, other pros that have spent their entire life dedicated to the sport of golf would show up to tournament saying, you know, I, I hope I can get second today. Like that was their mindset because of how good <laughs> yeah. he was. And that all unraveled so quickly. Um, and once he realized, he, you know, that he wasn't impervious and that he wasn't immortal and that he was flawed and that started to unravel and he didn't have his biggest supporter in his ear to pump him back up. Or as I said, with a smile, brainwash him again, you know, I mean, he, he fell from grace really, really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. It's incredible. All the different paths that we take that really do stem from our childhood. That really dictates the path for most of our, the rest of our lives in some way, shape or form, oh, at least on absolutely. the mental side. Yeah. Which is so, why as fathers, you and I have to be so much more cognizant of that now that we're on the other end of it and, and realizing, okay, what are the things that we we can do to support and love and empower our children and give them the tools they need to be the best that they're capable of without messing them up too much. And, and I say that with a huge smile as well, because, you know, I, I don't believe in perfection. You know, all of us as human beings, we're flawed, we're fallible. You know, I know how much we all love our own children. It doesn't mean we're not going to make mistakes. I make plenty of them. Um, but to me, the key is being aware and being conscious of them so we can hopefully course correct. And, you know, oh, as yeah. you know the and interesting you know, what, part what, about parenting. Oh, go ahead. Go, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say the interesting part about parenting is, you don't really know how you did until your kids are older, you know, until mm. they're adults and you kind of see how they turned out. It's like, you know, you can't really judge a cake while it's still in the oven. You got to wait till that thing comes out and you throw some frosting on it and you slice it up and everybody eats it. Then you know how well you did with the cake. Uh, so right. kids is an interesting one because we can think we're doing most things correctly, but we don't really get that uh, test score until they're a little bit older. 
Ah, that makes a lot of sense. A little false sense of security, maybe when they're young. Hey, we're doing an awesome <laughs> job. And then it doesn't turn out so great at 21 or whatever. Um, <laughs> but well, you and I have it even harder because now we're dealing with the technology era, the social media era, the TikTok era, where our kids are exposed to so much more than we were exposed to. So that makes things even that much more challenging because you're trying to balance being a parent, being strict, making sure there's foundation, yet you don't want to go over the top again and where, where your kid feels suffocated and can't do anything when all their friends are doing TikTok and doing the dancing and all that kind of stuff. So we're walking this balancing act. I, I don't know. That's how I feel. I don't know if you feel the same, but we're walking this balancing act again, back to balance of uh, trying to, kind of keep our kids in line, but still give them a little leeway so that they don't feel left out from the rest of the crowd. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think in, in similar to what you're just saying, this is probably the hardest time to ever parent a child. Um, I also have empathy and compassion for saying, I think this is the hardest time to be a child, mm. you know, that uh, I'm not one of those ones that thinks every successive generation after is softer. Uh, I think now is the toughest time to be a child for the reasons that you just said, you know, uh, in many instances, they, they kind of live in a fishbowl that, that, that they can play this comparison game with kids all over the world, that they're subjected to tremendous amounts and overwhelming amount of information and their little unformed brains can't always decipher what's legit and what's not like it's, it is really challenging. So that is where I think our parenting really comes into play. And, and for me, my goal has always been, and this would be the same if I was raising my kids 40 years ago, or if somehow you put me in the future and I was raising them 40 years from now, to me, arguably the most important skill set we can teach our children is how to be good decision makers is how to be able to learn and take in information and then make good decisions. Now, obviously we might have different definitions of what a good decision is, but I just want my kids to be conscious and aware of the decisions they make and understand that every decision they make large and small will have a consequence tied to it. And consequence is another interesting word because most people have a negative um, connotation with that word. I, I simply view the word consequence as synonymous with result. Like every decision you make will yield a result. And if you want to get better results, then make better decisions. Mm. You know, I don't think anyone would argue with the logic that if you make mostly great decisions, you'll lead a mostly great life. If you make really, really poor decisions, you're going to have a tough go at things. And, uh, you know, if, if you don't believe that, go interview someone that's in prison right now. And they'll tell you, I've made a couple bad decisions in my life. Doesn't mean they're bad people necessarily. They've made a couple bad decisions and it's changed the outcome of their life. So I just want to teach my kids how to be good decision makers. And yes, that is increasingly harder living in society today, but that's no why parenting is even more important. And for, for you and I in particular to be very present fathers and, and connected with our children and be open and vulnerable with them and to try to model the behavior we want to see in them. Um, you know, of all the hats that I wear in my life, that's the one that's definitely the most important to me. Yeah. And it's amazing how, and that was extremely insightful and I couldn't agree with you more. It's amazing how one or two negative acts can overpower a hundred positive acts. One or two negative decisions could overpower and change the outlook of the rest of you. You could have been an amazing person for 99% of the time. You make one or two real bad decisions just in that split second that could change the course of your life. You make really good decisions. It's not going to change, have the same impact, right? Like, wouldn't it be great if you just could make one awesome decision and the next thing you know, you're, you're a millionaire, you've got this big home, you're retired, you're happy, you're fulfilled. 
it doesn't work like that. But one bad decision could really impact the rest of your life in a negative way. Absolutely. And, and I've always been a big believer in little things make a big difference. Mm. So what I try and teach my children is that every decision you make matters and get practice making good decisions as frequently as you can. Because I think if you can practice making good decisions on the little stuff, it increases the odds that you'll make better decisions on the big stuff. Doesn't It's not a foolproof plan by any means, but I think it's it's about getting those reps. And, yeah. and you know, funny enough, I try and use that that same philosophy in my own life, like especially when it comes to dealing with adversity. I mean, just think about, so we, we started this conversation or at least part of the conversation was talking about Kobe's passing in January of 2020, which that in and of itself was, was you know, that shook me to my core. But then think of what transpired after that, the global pandemic, mm-hmm. the social unrest, the political divide. Like, I don't think anyone would argue that the last couple of years have been a tremendous amount of adversity. And similar to what I was saying on the good decisions, I try and practice my ability to cope with and manage smaller adversities so that when the big ones happen, I'm a little bit more resilient. You know, I mean, at present, I am so thankful that I have three healthy children. Um, both of my parents are still alive. Like I have so many things to be grateful for. Yeah. But I also recognize that none of that stuff is promised and that a big adversity could be right around the corner for me tomorrow, next week, a month from now, five years from now. So I want to practice handling the little stuff. And by little stuff, I'm literally talking about some of the minor inconveniences of life like sitting in traffic or, or having a slow cashier or ordering food at a restaurant and it takes twice as long, you know, think how many times those little things can, can absolutely unravel someone to mm. the point that, you know, they get really irritated and annoyed. And like, so I try to be bulletproof when it comes to all of the little stuff and just say, Hey, th- this is not a big deal, you know, so that when the big stuff happens, hopefully I'll be better equipped to handle it, you know, in a good fashion. That's perfect. And that all ties to your book, Sustain Your Game, your latest book. You have two books that, you know, Raise Your Game was your first one. Sustain Your Game is kind of the follow-up to the first book. Um, and you talked about COVID. You talked about the stress, the stress that we've endured as a whole society for the last couple of years and, and people living in fear and not knowing what to do. Stay home. Don't go to work. Um don't don't eat with your family don't have thanksgiving all these things wear a mask all the crazy stuff that we've had to experience compound that with um with uh, uh the the stress of work life people not knowing what the future looks like struggling trying to find where am i going to end up in my career um so and then of course all of that potentially leads to the burnout Right. So that's and it's all tied into the theme of your book. So talk to us a little bit uh, about your books. First, sustain your game. Well, first, you know, talk a little bit about raise your game and then why you ended up deciding to write sustain your game as a follow up. Be happy to No, I'm glad we went in this direction. So I'm always writing the book that mirrors what it is I'm going through in my own life which means in essence, I'm always writing the book that I need to read myself. And the reason I do that is um, I find it part liberating and enlightening and part therapeutic 
to be researching and writing about the things that I need to work on myself. So when I was writing Raise Your Game, which is how you reach that proverbial mountaintop, is when I had left the basketball training space and became a corporate keynote speaker. And I wanted to try and figure out, all right, how do I ascend to the top of my craft and become the best keynote speaker that I'm capable of? This has nothing to do with being better than anybody else. I'm not playing the comparison game, but what do I need to do to be the best at my craft? And, and that was why I wrote Raise Your Game. Uh, then I realized that, and this is by no means to imply that I've reached that mountaintop because I'll be climbing for the rest of my life, but I realized there was a distinct difference between the climb and then what it takes to sustain that level of excellence, but not only sustain it, sustain it with a high level of joy and fulfillment as well. So not, not grinding and not gritting your teeth to trudge through it, but to actually enjoy it. Um, and this was during the pandemic. And, and, and it came, I came to the conclusion that the three things that will most often undermine your ability to sustain high performance and sustain high fulfillment is stress, stagnation, and burnout. That if you can find ways to uh, you know, eliminate, avoid, or at least manage those three things, you give yourself a much better chance to perform at a high level for long periods of time, like several decades, as well as enjoy it. So uh, I really unpacked in the book you know, how we can manage stress, how we can avoid stagnation, and what we can do to beat burnout. And ultimately, for all three, it comes down to how we started this wonderful conversation. It comes down to our mind, our mindset, our mindfulness, our awareness, and our perspective. Mm. A perfect example. And this kind of piggybacks on what I was saying earlier. You know, one of the most epiphanal moments I've ever had was when I realized that stress is not caused by outside factors. They're not caused by events or circumstances or what people say or what people do. Our stress is caused by our resistance to those things by our perspective of those things, how we internalize them. And I actually found that to be very liberating because that means I'm no longer at the mercy of what's happening in the world around me. I get to choose my response to those things and that response will dictate my stress level. And just so you or your listeners don't think I've lost my marbles or I, I live in a fantasy land, I'm not saying that the things that go on in the outer world are to your liking. And I'm not saying they're your preference. I'm not even saying that some of the things that happen in this world are inherently good. What I'm saying is you have no control over those things happening. And the sooner you can accept them and, and be very intentional with a thoughtful response, the sooner you'll be able to lower your stress level. That's fantastic. And give us a little, a little more, if you would, a little, a few examples, because you talk about there's three parts to your book, sustain your game. Part one is perform. Part two is pivot. And part three is prevail. And again, one is about managing stress, two is about avoiding stagnation, and three is about avoiding burnout. How, just give us some examples. How do you go about doing those things? Sure. Well, here, here's another uh, for something to think about. So we're talking about the pandemic, which, you know, has now been just over two years. And, you know, I could ask one person and they could say the pandemic is the absolute worst thing to ever happen to humanity. And I could talk to someone else of equal you know, intelligence level, equally informed, and they could say the pandemic is the best thing that's ever happened to humanity for reasons like it got me to slow down. It got me to pay more attention to my mental health and my physical well-being. It got me back at home eating dinners with my family. It got me to leave a job that I no longer found fulfillment in and, design, and you know, decide to do something that I actually enjoyed more. So you could ask two people about their perspective on the exact same event and have polar opposite responses, which shows that the pandemic in, in and of itself does not create stress. 
It's your perception or your perspective of or your resistance to the pandemic that would either raise or lower stress. So once you realize that, to me, that is the most empowering and liberating mindset you can have because it mm. says it does not matter what happens in the world around me. I will choose a, an intentional and thoughtful response, and that response will dictate how I see the world and, and how I move forward. So that's the stress portion. And, and, and let me say, too, a major disclaimer. I know I'm saying this with a smile in a very matter-of-fact tone. I'm not for one second saying doing that is easy. I'm not for, I mean, I have nothing but massive empathy and compassion for anyone out there struggling, for anyone out there that feels stressed, for anyone that says the pandemic was the worst thing that ever happened to them. I don't say that with an ounce of judgment. I say that with all the love I have in my heart, but I want them to know that they're free to change that perspective whenever they choose and that that is something that they do actually choose. So that's looking at the stress component. Uh, and it sounds like if you, oh, if, if you, if I may, uh, Alan, it sounds like what you're saying too is, hey, not only is that such a liberating outlook that it allowed me to get better here and better there, it's almost like you're looking for that, hey, this is a negative experience. How am I, what can I do to turn this lemon into some lemonade? I, I'm going to, I've been unhealthy. I've been living an unhealthy lifestyle. I've been eating like crap. I'm overweight. This pandemic made me realize I better take better care of myself or else I'm going to be susceptible to the next pandemic that comes. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, and that's the perspective one can have. And like I said, I'm not saying that that's easy, you know, when an adversity strikes, whether it's something nominal and trivial or something massive, like a two-year global pandemic. Um, I'm not saying that, that coming to that conclusion is quick or easy, but I just want you to know that it, it is within your power. And anytime I'm faced with an adversity, I, I always ask myself a few questions. The very first question I ask is, all right, wh what is this teaching me? This, this, this advert, like, what is the lesson here? Like, I don't want this adversity or this challenge or this struggle to go in vain. So what can I pull from this that can actually help me move forward in my life? Then the second thing I ask is, how am I complicit in this? Like, when I don't get the outcome that I desired, I ask myself, how am I responsible for the outcome? Now, mm. Obviously, uh, I don't have any personal uh, uh, responsibility to the global pandemic. That one was a little bit above my pay grade, but I'm absolutely complicit in some of the, the ways that I was internalizing it and some of the ways that I allowed it to kind of you know, infiltrate my mental toughness. And there were times when I absolutely struggled. There were times during the pandemic, I was depressed. I was anxious. You know, I wasn't able to do the two things that fill me up the most in this world are watch my kids do things that they love to do, like play sports and to be on stage speaking in front of people. Those are two things that fill my bucket immensely. And both of those things were sidelined for well over a year. So mm. like I had to give myself some grace and compassion and say, Alan, it's okay to be a little bit down in the dumps. It's okay to feel a little depressed. The two things that you know meant the world to you were just taken and now you have to figure out a thoughtful response so that you can move past that because you right. didn't control the fact those things were taken, but you also don't want to sit around and wallow and be depressed. So let's figure out some ways that, that hopefully you can navigate through that. You had to and, almost move to part two in a weird way. You had to pivot your own joys and your own accomplishment, whatever, whatever was going to give you that stimulation and fulfillment. It was like, I need to, I need to have some, a backup plan. I need to have some I other things ready to go. Absolutely. And that wasn't easy. And that's the reason I'm sharing that in true vulnerability is none of this is easy. So every single person listening to this right now, our conversation right now is, is on a different part of the specs, the, the, the spectrum of their perspective of things. And I want them to know that if, if you're on the end where you're feeling anxious or depressed, or you're feeling really lousy or low, just know one, that it's okay to not be okay. Two, 
you are not alone. There are millions of people that feel the way that you do. And three, be kind and compassionate to yourself and do everything you can to slowly dig out of that space over time. But don't, don't compare yourself to others. Don't be in any rush. Be kind. And, and one of the, the things that I've learned to do, and this has taken a lot of practice, is I've learned to talk to myself with the same kindness and compassion uh, that I talk to others. You know, a perfect example would be, and, and I know you and I are, are just meeting and getting acquainted, but let's hypothetically say you and I have been great friends for a decade. If you called me up tonight and said, Alan, man, today was a tough day. You know, I, I, I want to, you know, whatever, a long list of things. I got in an argument with my spouse. You know, one of my kids is being really disrespectful. I, you know, I, I had a podcast interview and I got midway through and I forgot to hit record and I sent this proposal out. <laughs> that would be a terrible denied. day. That would be, it, it would be, it would be a tough day. <laughs> yeah. And if you reached out to me and said, Alan, I just had a tough day as your friend, the very first thing I would do would be try to, to comfort you and support you and say, Hey, I, I know today was a tough day. I'm sorry that those things happened, but I also believe in you. And I know that you're strong enough to get past this. I think you're going to learn some lessons from the things that happened today. And you're going to be a better man moving forward. And don't ever forget that today is over tomorrow. So you're going to get a fresh start tomorrow and things will be better. Like I would do everything I can to comfort you. Yeah. And I've had to learn to talk to myself in that same tone, because I used to be one of those ones that I would, I would be very critical of myself. I would beat myself up when I, I didn't perform well. And then I would start stacking shame and guilt on top of that. And ultimately I would have this, this cocktail of very toxic emotions that wasn't helping me improve. So the very first thing I do now when I'm struggling, and this happens quite frequently is I learned to talk to myself the same way I would talk to a friend or a loved one. Mm. That's fantastic advice. So we've talked a little bit about the perform, a little bit about the pivot. And then again, how do you prevail past the, uh, the uh, burnout? Well, burnout is, is created from a misalignment between the hours you're working and the sacrifices you're making and the meaning that you find in the work that you're doing. You know, it's not just from long hours. It's from long hours that you don't find meaningful, uh, that you don't find fascinating, long hours that aren't in alignment with your core values or the person that you're trying to become. Uh, if you don't feel like the work you're doing is making a contribution to the greater good or is in service of others, those are the things that can kind of cause that splintering effect. So when you're working a lot of hours, but you're not getting any fulfillment out of those hours, that's when you're at risk for burnout. And, mm. and that's something I want folks to make sure they pay attention to. I mean, yes, the, one, the long hours is one thing, and we have to prioritize self-care to make sure we're getting sleep and we're eating well and we're exercising and we're nourishing our, our minds and our, our hearts um, to help withstand that. But you also have to make sure that whatever you're pouring your time and attention into is something you find meaningful and purposeful. And if it's not, then you need to make some tweaks or some pivots. Uh, and the most drastic of those is to simply try and find something else to do. And, and, and I'm an example of that. I mean, I, I loved the 15 years that I was in the basketball training space. I mean, I have so much reverence and respect for the game and for players and for coaches. But after 15 years, I started to get burned out that I didn't find as much significance or meaning in the work I was doing. And I needed to do something different. And after some soul searching and some introspection and some reflection, I decided to, to take everything I'd learned from the game and apply those to the corporate space as a keynote speaker and author. And um, that pivot was one of the best that I've ever made because I absolutely love what I'm doing now. Um, I do work a, a decent amount, but at the same time, I find so much meaning and purpose in the work that I do. Um, I'm not anywhere at, at risk of burnout at present. Now, if you and I do this show again in 10 years, story could be differently then, but I'll have the tools then to make another pivot if needed. Mm, that's fascinating stuff. And like anything else, 
raise your game. Raise your game is probably easier to achieve. Actually, it's definitely easier to achieve than sustaining your game. It's easier to take the hill than to hold the hill. Anybody can go up and improve. Anybody can get better. But to sustain that for a continuous period of time, that's a tricky thing. And I think that's now. Does that do you believe that people need to read raise your game first in order to truly get the full value out of sustain your game, or do they not necessarily have to? No, they wouldn't necessarily have to. I, I was very intentional in writing sustain your game to make sure that they could be read in either order, or you could read either as a standalone work. That you don't have to read both. Now, obviously, I'm heavily biased and feel like if someone read both and you read raise your game and sustain your game first, that would be absolutely picture perfect and ideal but definitely not a necessity. So whatever someone feels like they're dealing with first uh, or needs to their, their attention to first, um, that one would work perfect. Got it. Got it. Hey, uh, before we finish up, you mentioned you're, you're doing coaching, you coach individuals, you coach uh, in business, the corporate settings, you do speaking engagements. And of course you have a podcast. Talk about all three of those things, if you would. I'd be happy to. So my, my main focal point in my business is keynote speaking. And that can be anything from a 45 minute customized keynote, you know, at an event or to a, a, a corporate client, uh, all the way up to a full day training or a half day workshop. So um, anything that I can do, um, whether in person or virtually, because the pandemic, that's one of the silver linings. It certainly got me to up my virtual game um, and helping folks improve both individual performance and organizational performance. That's that's my main my main focus. And the books are just supplemental tools to do that at scale. Uh, I do have a, a small handful of, of exclusive one-on-one -on -one clients um, that it's kind of a mix between an executive coach and a life coach. I mean, ultimately my job with my one-on-one -on -one clients is to help them see their blind spots and help give them new perspectives uh, and then to hold them to the highest level of accountability. So part of my role as a coach is an accountability manager, is, is getting you to do the things that you said you would do when you said you would do them. And um, yeah, and then I have a podcast called The Raise Your Game Show and uh, also very active on social media. So anything I can do to, to help support anyone that's listening to this and anyone that supports your amazing show would always be my honor to do it. Uh, you can check out allensteinjr.com. I have a supplemental site, strongerteam.com, which has most of this other stuff. And then I'm at Alan Stein Jr. on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook and love connecting with folks there. Awesome. And we'll make sure we link some of that up in the show notes, guys. If you want to see Alan's work, check him out, buy his book, click the links in the show notes and uh, you can see more there. Uh, last thing for, for you, um, you mentioned you're working with corporations and also individuals. What's like the main theme that you see of individuals in corporate settings? What is the one, one or two of the biggest things that you see these people struggling with that's holding them back from truly reaching their potential? You know, right now, and I'm, I'm glad that you asked that. I think that's a perfect way to put a big red bow tie on this really fun conversation. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I think the mistake that most people make, and as I said, I made this mistake for, I don't know, 43 out of the 46 years that I've been alive. <laughs> the mistake they make is that they believe that the outer world dictates their inner world. Like I'm in right now at the time of this recording, I'm in Las Vegas. I'm speaking to a group of franchisees tomorrow. They're in the, the food and beverage space and they are dealing with the same thing that so many groups are dealing with right now. Uh, you know, uh, shortages on labor, uh, supply chain issues, rising costs of food and beverage. Like it's a perfect storm of things that are really difficult for them. And part sure. of my message to them is to say, yes, all of those things are true. All of those things are valid. All of those things are massive hurdles to what you're trying to accomplish. However, 
all of those things are outside of your control. So every minute that you spend focus on something outside of your control takes away from your ability to invest in the things you do have control over. So you don't control labor shortages, supply chain issues, or rising costs. Why don't you focus on the things that you do have control over, like attracting and recruiting top talent, training and developing that talent, and then doing everything in your power to create the type of culture that gets them to want to stay so you can retain top talent and put your focus on the things you have control over. And that will help you weather the storm while things are admittedly a bit bleak. And Mm. Uh, I think that's the message that almost every organization in the world needs to hear right now is there are a lot of things outside of your control and those things are true and they're valid and they are difficult. I'm not taking anything away from them, but you don't control them. So let's focus on what you do have control over. And if I can do my job from stage tomorrow, folks will feel a little better equipped to do that. I have no doubt you will. And again, to piggyback off of that, I would 10 out of 10 times prefer to go to Chick-fil-A than McDonald's. And that's all because of the service. Their service is exceptional. That's what it comes down to. Yeah, and their uh, their nuggets aren't bad either. (laughs) Well, well, yeah, the food's food's pretty damn good too. Hey, uh, Alan Stein Jr., check him out, guys. We linked him in the show notes. Hey, man, uh, thanks for the inspiration and the insight. Fantastic conversation and continued success to you. Thank you. This was so much fun.